The main thing is that there's no kind of menu. There's no kind of book of instruction. You cannot cause a Sierra Club outing with a leader to take you up and down the dunes of Cape Cod and give you a Mary Oliver experience. You have to be Mary Oliver. (laughs) This is season one of the Free Flow podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast, a show that takes today's best storytellers outside into their favorite wild places for conversations about craft, conservation, and the creative life. Today's episode is part two of Rick White's conversation with David James Duncan. In part one, David discussed his writing, both fiction and nonfiction, and read an excerpt from his forthcoming novel, Sunhouse. Today, between discussions of writing, authors, and favorite bird encounters, you'll hear David read his essay, Cherish This Ecstasy. Rick and David's conversation took place at a secluded spot overlooking the Bitterroot River in Missoula, Montana, with their legs dangling over the edge of the high water bank. How often do you come out here? Oh, I come look at the river every day. Yeah. I usually just ride to that promontory uh, and the, at the end of my bike ride and just look at what's rising. And it's just so incredible That's when downstream you'll see these giant pike taking out probably a northern pike minnow, formerly known as squawfish, um, but maybe occasionally. I don't think they can catch trout. They might try. But it's incredible. I mean, it's just it's huge. It's like, oh, I didn't know they had alligators in the, in the Bitterroot. <laughs> There's some really big ones. Uh, my friend Phil Gardner saw a guy at Kona Bridge land a 40-incher wow. uh, about a week ago on a fly. Pileated followed us down here. What's your... Um do you have any good woodpecker encounters? Memorable? Mm. Well, I guess maybe my favorite was a uh, a hairy woodpecker male that knocked itself out on our windows. And... Uh, I held it for way longer than it seemed possible that it could have just been unconsciousness. I held it for more than half an hour. And I was mostly just struck with wonder being able to inspect a woodpecker's entire tongue. The tongue is just an amazing device. It's incredibly long uh, given the size of the bird. And they can extend it way the hell into the, the holes they drill. And as I was marveling at its tongue, it just started to snap too. I was I hold them to my heart because um, I want them to know that my pulse is staying slow and that I'm calm, and so that I'm not a predator kind of threat. I think that makes a difference. Yeah, we've talked about one of my my favorites of yours is cherish this ecstasy. Um, and just the 
I did not grow up. I grew up a bird hunter um, with a reverence for birds that I couldn't put, couldn't articulate. Um, mm-hmm. I cherish this ecstasy. Uh, was was so pivotal, such pivotal reading for me in, in seeing that uh, and and understanding birds in a different in a different light. Unintentionally, I was holding that loon to my heart when it let out with the, and it just it just it exploded me. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It just looked like a piece of a exploded semi-tire until I saw the way it flopped right in the groove of the fast lane on I-90. And I never would have made that save if I hadn't abandoned that poor western grebe uh, when I was full of despair with you know my first marriage falling apart and uh, coast range being absolutely annihilated so that Bob Packwood could stand on women's feet and grope them and all our forests could go to Japan. Rather than generalizing, I wonder if you can take me back to writing, sitting down to write that essay. Because um, yeah. it's, it's so compressed. It's so, it touches on so many of the things we've talked about between grief and humor. Um, I think it's such a distillation of, of your voice and style and, and spirituality, a lot of the themes that come out in other longer works. What, just if you if you wouldn't mind talking me through what the what it was to write that essay well in the longer essay bird watching is a blood sport <clears throat> if you've read that you know how crushed i was when i abandoned that creep mm-hmm. it's a horrible thing to do it was just that it was totally the dark place that was in me because uh of what was happening to the forests and that my marriage had failed and uh but I, it was there were a lot of things about that that were strange. One is that there, I lived in a wonderful community on the Oregon coast, and one of my friends there who's an artist had opened a beautiful new studio, and there was a gathering of basically the whole community. It was a the hub was about thirty people, and before my marriage was threatened, um, I was at that gathering. And I was looking around, and there was no reason to have this reason, this feeling at all. But it was like, this is not where I belong. This is not my people. These are not my people. I love them. These are not my people. The, the, my center is not here. I can't feel any center. I lived in this row of homes that was the hub of that community, but uh, it was situated on a, a ridge in such a way that um, shorter time of year, the short days, uh, sun went away like by noon. And I, I would just start doing poorly. Um, what saved me was uh, steelhead fishing. I would just get the hell out of the house and chase fish on rivers. But it, it was a hard place to work. Um, the stuff about realizing that we we have to bring a light out of our bodies in order to see what is true. And uh, old racist John Muir just comes out and calls it love. I'm so sorry that he was just a victim of the racism that was endemic of his time is anyway the <clears throat> the fact that I'd failed to send a light I just I it just I just tried to force myself it was forced it wasn't didn't feel like grace it felt like an act of I have so much you know uh, will and grace the great Christian dichotomy of where blessing comes from I, like all my faith is in grace of stuff that happens spontaneously will has gotten so much faith 
uh, turns into a horror show, turns into doctrine and ridiculous laws and a, a god of reason, which was the monstrous god that gave us all the colonialization of the world and the beginning of the nonstop war we've had for about five centuries, and uh, particularly saving the loon. I just realized that if you give it a chance, don't think it's anything you can own or control, but that this light can come and make you more attentive. All right. Uh, I want to make a preliminary comment. It feels important to say each time I read this essay that every character even fleetingly mentioned was never at fault and was forgiven even before the moment of forgiveness described in the essay. This is a no-blame piece of writing. Cherish this ecstasy. The peregrine falcon was brought back from the brink of extinction by a ban on DDT, but also by a peregrine falcon mating hat invented by an ornithologist at Cornell University. If you can't believe this, Google it. Female falcons had grown dangerously scarce. A few wistful males nevertheless maintained a sort of sexual loitering ground. The hat was imagined, constructed, then forthrightly worn by the ornithologist as he patrolled this loitering ground, crying, Chee-yup! Chee-yup! while bowing like a hyper-polite Japanese Buddhist trying to tell someone goodbye. For reasons neither scientists nor fashion designers entirely understand, this behavior inspired the occasional male falcon to dive onto the ornithologist's head, fuck his hat, and fire endangered sperm into the hat's hidden rubber receptacle. The last few females were then artificially inseminated so their chicks could be raised in DDT-free captivity. The young, produced in this way, saved the peregrine from extinction. A success story from the annals of human meddling as rare as the likes of DDT are common. When I think about your writing and I think about the stuff that we've been talking about and how to do that, I mean, it's it's one thing to conceive of the notion of writing about love or or or, or nature or spirituality or anything that that um, people might associate with with you and your writing and there's another thing to do it well and I just I don't mm, I don't know if there's a secret but it, it how do you how do you keep it from being how do you keep something like let's just say spirituality from being trite like how do you how do you write about it or, or how do you do it and it becomes trite and you know that it is. Um, yeah, and then you kill it because, I mean, you don't you don't publish that as soon as you yeah. find it. How, yeah, how if do you, you can pull it, you pull it. How do you keep it from being saccharine, you know? Um, well, one thing you probably noticed, I just still fall back totally on East Multnomah County, Oregon, uh, blue-collar, foul mouth. you know. I swear. And I think swearing... Uh, as value. Um, I think it grounds things in a way. Uh, if I'm horrifying uh, most clerics, 
I'm happy to be doing that. Um, I feel like maybe something authentic is happening where they they're running a Xerox machine. You know, uh, here's another Xerox of the festival of whatever, and um, so to just kind of shake people a little including myself it's like oh i shouldn't have said that oh maybe i should have let me think about this a minute yeah i think i should have <laughs> that's one little factor but um the main thing is that we aren't there's no kind of menu there's no kind of book of instruction you cannot cause a sierra club outing with a leader to take you up and down the dunes of Cape Cod and give you a Mary Oliver experience. You have to be Mary Oliver, <laughs> and who has honed her skills and written all kinds of things that were a horror to her that she burned, uh, maybe lit the pyre with a, one of her cigarettes that she enjoyed to the end of her long life. And, um, uh, Jim Harrison's nature poems. Yeah, I mean, Jim was a really all-embracing personality. He outzorbed Zorba by quite a bit. It's <laughs> a great way. Of, that's great. <laughs> and uh, and he is one of the better. Uh, well, Jane Hirschfeld told me in a letter, Jim Harrison is as good as it gets, and he is a he is a great mystical poet when he's not talking about something else, and especially late in his life. He just, he hit one of those streaks about, from about the location of the river is kind of the edge after a queue, then he's off and running, and then he has that trilogy, that Livingston Paradise Valley trilogy, uh, and then Dead Man's Float. I mean, God, he was just dying when he was writing that. And what an incredible book. He just, literally died writing it. Yeah, well, he's done Deal with the book, but he, he died writing another, another poem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but who else just gonna, you know, sit on a bridge out over the ocean with the Spanish greats, <laughs> or try to, you know, bring back the the great? I can't remember. Wh I'm gonna garble which of the poets it was, but it's usually great. The Spanish poets bring out their real romantic in Jim, and when that he's, you know, saved that girl uh, who got robbed by her coyote and was freezing to death when Jim found her and just a guy like that just sitting on a bridge over the ocean or or imagining uh, that girl and who I think might have been Mikado uh, together in paradise um, just because that that absolutely wrung his heart and he just perfectly captures what wrung his heart and you have to go out there and get wrung and I'm not saying R-U-N-G I'm saying W-R-U and you got to get wadded up like a rag and thrown in a corner and left to die and whatever the hell it is and um, there's nothing fun about that's if there's a value at this point to me for say can't even call it work anymore because it's so impotent but uh, anything I say about wild salmon um, the most meaningful thing to me is the, is just the helpless sorrow in it it's just like watching Jesus on the cross 
he's already nailed up. The salmon are nailed up. And uh, it's a kind of massive incomprehension that has given us this horrific, uh, cold-hearted, selfish, uh, greedy, industrialized mess that we're in. Um, But we've reached that fascinating Julia Butterfly Hill point of the unsustainable is now destroying itself along with everything that it's destroying. And that is an interesting time to be alive. What would you say to people who are hesitant right now to have kids and are reconsidering because of the I've talked about that world. just a little with Adrian, and we, we really question what we would do. Yeah. You know? But it feels so tenuously transitional now. And uh, unless you're somebody who somehow knew you had a character uh, that could bear up the incredible love you feel for this incredibly vulnerable being coinciding with a president who puts the same kind of beings in cages at the border and uh, all these just blathering hypocrites and fools who support him, you know, like McConnell totally reversing his nine-month stonewalling of a Supreme Court nomination while he tries to squeeze one off in a few weeks. I mean... There are words in the dictionary, you know, blatant hypocrisy. Uh, There's no greater example. And then to watch the whole party leap on board and think of having an infant in my arms as I'm watching this on evening news. I don't know where I could go with my psyche. I mean, I I, I just enter my child's world and pray that the shit that's happening doesn't destroy what's left while it's still standing. It's just the world's going through such an incredible reduction already. I'm sorry I can't say happier words, but I know that both both my daughters are 27 and about to turn 30, and they have real concerns, really profound concerns. And I, I, I would never say, oh, you got to make me a grampy, you know. <laughs> It's it's way more serious than indulging the old farts that you know, uh, who's who should only respect your view anyway. It's you know it's and you're talking about children. You're talking about really serious alterations of your life and your relationships. And uh, my children have been a joy, but I also know we've been really lucky and. Also, a huge amount of vigilance and uh, effort goes into it. While researching a novel about birds entering extinction the same year my first marriage did the same, I wrote a long, inexcusably intimate letter to the Cornell ornithologist. That he was a stranger perhaps explains the intimacy, strangers being far preferable to friends when things as personal as marriages are falling to ruin. That he'd managed to save a fabulous species explains my extreme trust. That I was half insane from the strains of a near certain impending divorce perhaps explains the shakiness of the undertaking. 
Memory fixates on times of intense passage, but also mythologizes them. Allowing for this patina, here is everything I can remember about my long letter to the Cornell ornithologist. I got right to it, asking if he'd be so kind as to use the enclosed self-addressed stamped envelope to send me a diagram of his unimaginable hat, or better, a photo of said hat, preferably with his head in it, enduring furious wing-beating coitus. I explained that I was a novelist and bird lover, promised my interest was sincere, and added that no detail of his work was inconsequential to me. I asked, for instance, whether, in addition to the Buddhistic bowing, he found it helpful to walk in a suggestive manner to lure down the hats, so to speak, opposite sex. If so, I added, could he please describe this walk in detail so that, should occasion arise, I could reproduce it in the vicinity of a wife who'd grown dangerously scarce. This kind of praise may seem a stretch, I confessed to the ornithologist, but I want you to know that I admire you not only because you helped save a magnificent species, but because I, far more than most, know what it is to have a wild bird achieve orgasm on my head. Listen, my letter and I whispered. A few evenings ago, I was sitting on a lonely Moss-covered veranda I once considered a sort of sexual loitering ground, hurting, but praying, but hurting, but praying. When a lust-crazed male, red-shafted flicker chased a female under an eave not four feet over my head, mounted her, and pierced her so profoundly that her wings went limp and hung down toward me like two exquisite garments she was compelled by her passion to remove. She went so limp she couldn't right herself to fly. Do you see the beauty in this? She relinquished her defining power to hang above me, beak open, eyes open, cheeks crimson, reminding me of the too great for Catholics St. Meister Eckhart. The greater the nudity, the greater the union. He promised Christ-pierced Rhine Valley women mystics by the thousand, scaring the Vatican's finest so Christless that they waited until the Meister died, sent inquisitors to the Rhine, dismembered and buried his still-living sermons, silenced or burned Christ's profoundly pierced female lovers, and excommunicated the nudity and the wings. Epigrams and the conversation that literature is. Mm-hmm. Um, on a daily, like, how much is how much is reading uh, a part of your writing inextricable from your writing? Um, what? There was a life trajectory to that, Rick. It started. Uh, Literature brought me consolation when I was broken before wisdom literature did. I read Hesse and Thomas Mann, Herman Hesse, uh, Nikos Kazantzakis, Nikos Kazantzakis' St. Francis. It's like the, the best portrait of a saint that's ever been written. It was written by an atheist, Nikos Kazantzakis. I love that kind of stuff. 
Piety kills him. Oh my God, the St. Francis in some recent TV thing where he went on the Crusades and... God, it just was cardboard. Awful. Inedible. Um, Yeah. The old Greek atheist really did him justice. Um, And even, you know, he writes about uh, Francis' mystical experiences more skillfully than the Catholics can because they're just slathering on the molasses and honey and sugar and whatever other forms of treacle they can... Anyway, um, the question was about reading. When I'm working on long-form fiction, it becomes extremely difficult for me to read especially great long-form fiction. Like when I was working on Brothers K, I knew that Toni Morrison's Beloved was a great book, and I started it and I set it aside because its prose rhythms are incredibly important to uh, composing long form and you can juggle several different kinds if you're consistent in their use but hers was so different and then I tried to read the great Cormac McCarthy books and I think I only made it through uh, all the pretty horses and I had to I wasn't going to start writing Faulknerian sentences that connect everything with the word and uh, that's just it's so distinctive to him and uh, Faulkner and a few others, but especially him. And he, he does it so magnificently. Uh, but it just, it's too fucking strong. It's like putting, uh, I don't know, a bunch of absinthe on your uh, strawberry shortcake or something. You know, I just couldn't. What do we got? It's a vulture. Vulture, yeah. Yeah. It's nice to see that ruddy face. <laughs> And those got those must be young ravens just working on mm-hmm. how to articulate the Chinese word mu, <clears throat> which is kind of emptiness. Mm. Ah! It was that was maybe the greatest pleasure of uh, Sun House for me has been. <clears throat> well, Chip Blake's read the manuscript and he said. I can't imagine a more feminist book being written by an American man. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it was a nice thing for him to say, and I really did reach a state of complete comfort with the women characters, knowing that first I would show the writing to a whole bunch of my closest women friends to get their feedback and say, have I blown it here? And uh, and they were helpful in some ways, but then they were also... Good comic relief, like one woman insisted that uh, one of the characters, when she's very young, climbs a little, just the mountain right out of town in her town in Colorado. And uh, with a with a guy who's a climber <clears throat> and a ski dude, uh, kind of party animal, jolly, but extremely physical, lives in his body. And they climb the mountain and it's a hot day and they work up a sweat. And when they get to the top, I just figured they'd take off their clothes to dry them, so they did. And um, one of my women readers was like, um, well, she should be wearing boxer shorts. And then another of my women readers, who's much younger, said, oh, that boxer shorts fad happened for like two years. Don't, <laughs> don't they, she should be buck naked. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it's like, okay, so now she's buck naked. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no discussion of boxer shorts anywhere in the novel. <laughs> I don't like them myself. But <laughs> it's just too damn much cloth. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's great feedback. But yeah, I've, um, the, the two main, the two characters to who I feel spiritually closest. One is a Buddhist and the other one is kind of a mutt mystic. She falls in love with Vedanta when she's really young. And uh, the mystical segment of Hinduism, for those who don't know. And um, the kind of love that um, forms between them reminds me of a couple of loves I've had in my lo- my life, like for my Trappist brother, Casey, um, where the culture we live in, I think it's almost impossible for people not to want to think in terms of gayness or eroticism. And I, I, have, I have felt a few times in my life, at least moments in friendships that felt above anything definable by any kind of erotic language that exists and LGBTQ, any letter you want to throw at it, it's, it's other, it's something other. And, um, it's not without the Eros thread, but there's so much amour overwhelming the Eros element that you just not even thinking that there's any kind of physical contact that needs to follow uh, the incredible richness of such an experience that can sometimes exist between friends. A a, a nice thing about that is that that becomes a concept. It might become an experience for some people. And if the couple of those relationships of Sunhouse could ever give anybody that gift, I would be extremely grateful that that some hard work and something I've just thought about a lot, but not in terms of ratiocinative thinking, just in terms of what a wonderment that conversation I had with my monk friend while we spent four hours walking through the poison oak and oak trees behind his monastery. So there's some quiet things like that in in the book that uh, just... Do you have those hopes in mind for while you're writing? I usually start with from kind of a feisty place. Like, I just am so sick of the media. Every time anybody forgets Trump's lies and gives attention as if there's any value to the next fucking lie, they're forgetting that he disqualified himself before he even ran for office. And he just is a person for whom who just shits on everything that's true and good. And and the Republicans have followed him so deep up his anus that it's just, uh, it's unbelievable what it's done to civil discourse and even just basic walking down the street politeness in our country. And it's a huge loss that people aren't tracking. And my revulsion was so complete that I just thought I want an, 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 to write a long novel that shows people to be as wonderful as the human beings that I know and love. And there is not an asshole among them. We all make mistakes, but these people are just fucking outstanding. And, and it's like 
you can only get a cynical response to somebody when you can only get a cynical response to people that great things have gone too far so i just was thinking at first i want to i want this novel to be an asshole free zone if you want to see an asshole just turn on your computer turn on any any media uh, there's not going to be any in here remote pockets of rome defying wing worship survive nonetheless that willingly denuded female flicker so smote me that very late the same night, while my wife was out dancing, two dream flickers flew into my room, fused like a feathered halo o'er my head, and though not a wing or talon touched me, their passion poured in and in and in, till it summoned from some lost chasm of bliss miles inside me, the most ecstatic nocturnal emission of my life. I awoke, I told the ornithologist, passion shattered in blackness, sensing wings, and suddenly knew I'm never alone, knew to be as scientific as I can about this, that I am loved with no one and nothing there to show it. This invisible, ecstasy-producing, Neither avian nor human love then gave me the strength right there in the blackness to relinquish the defining power of marriage and accept my human wife's wish to leave me. So I can't help but wonder, I told the ornithologist, if you too have felt this unspeakable more than human love. Transfixing you via a magnificent male falcon during a night visitation, perhaps, or out in the field, singing and bowing in your supernaturally receptive hat. In the brothers Karamazov, I told the ornithologist, Father Zosima tells Alyosha, all is an ocean. All flows and connects so powerfully that if in this life you manage to become more gracious by even a drop, it is better for every bird, child, and animal your life touches than you will ever know. Start praying to birds in an ecstasy, Zosima advises. Cherish this ecstasy, however senseless it may seem to people. So I do. In this desolate, even life-threatening time, a pair of love-inflamed flickers transpierced and remade me as surely as your chips and bowing and hat have remade the peregrine. I'll thank wild birds and you forever for that. I trust you now see why a small photo of the hat in this time of intense personal passage would serve as a kind of icon for me. That was kind of an apotheosis. And then the funny part of the story is uh, I love poetry. And so, of course, I've tried a lot of times to write a poem and it's just a fucking disaster <laughs> I immediately go totally OCD on where to break the lines and soon I have 50 different versions <laughs> and forests are falling thanks to my attempt to write a fucking poem and, uh, and um, I wanted to write about the the way things had shifted 
with the way I perceive birds and also that incredibly moving event that, I mean, who's written about a wet dream as a spiritual experience? Uh, I, and it was. There's just no way it wasn't. And if you want to talk about, you know, folly or a certain kind of willingness to express anything that I have sincerely perceived as a genuine visitation of the spirit gone as fast as it comes i'm just a dumb shit i don't know anything until somebody asks me a question and then it turns out i know lots of things but i don't walk around knowing <clears throat> so i wanted to so grateful for adrian and um, i wanted to write a poem for her and she'd made this wonderful sculpture called a variation on saint francis where there's a saint francis who's actually kind of turning into a tree and there are birds inhabiting him. and um, So I was writing a variation on a variation of St. Francis, and it was kind of that stuff trying to be free, some of that material trying to be free verse. And it, it just was pretty awful. And so I did what I have done with every poem I've ever written. I just go, fuck this, and, and, and turn it into a paragraph. And then, oh damn, this works now. And so I had, uh, you know, maybe a third of it in, in rough draft form. And then just, I heard these wonderful stories about birds, birds like it was Tom McGuane telling me about the Hungarian partridges diving into the snowbank and forming those luminous blue snow caves. And um, who was it that's, well, there were just a bunch, there were the, Pygmy nut hatches, you know, exploding out of a hole in the middle of winter in a cottonwood. Um, uh, and I didn't have that litany. And the litany, by the time it reaches the loon, I really had built something where it's it's like my joy because the loon is the loon is the squirtage in the wet dream part of the, of the essay. <laughs> Just... Uh, it just, and all I had was it, the, the language for that. I needed Father Zosima, who is based on a, a, a real guy, a wonderful uh, Saint Isaac of Syria, this early Christian father, uh, desert father, uh, all of whose uh, works uh, I have in this gigantic volume. Uh, unbelievably uh, concise, Eastern Orthodox, joyous mystic. And um, what a cool thing for. Tolstoy to have played with. Um, I guess maybe that's that's one way I feel close to Tolstoy, and the other one is that Tolstoy uh, could write women just as well as he could write men. And you had a, a conversation with a woman who stopped reading The River Wide because she couldn't stand how masculinist Gus is, and I think that's absolutely on the money. But I had been I mean, I was really young when I started that book. I was 26 and finished it when I was 28 and change. And um, uh, I just was a walking vat of testosterone, you know. I mean, just uh, you know, I wasn't unchivalrous, but I, I was raised to think there was no shame in being a masculinist man. And then I met Adrian, and then I raised two daughters. And man. Raising two daughters, if you want to really be part of their lives, uh, 
that shit doesn't fly. That worldview does not fly. Uh, I was so grateful to jettison it. And the other th place that women have had an amazing place in my life is that starting in India, I have always known much, much older, I mean old. Uh, Ursula Le Guin would call them crones. Uh, I corresponded with Ursula a little bit and knew Charles enough to stop and converse when I lived in the same neighborhood and he was pruning his roses. But um, I just, there's been an abundance of wise women in my life. Yeah, I, I, really the whole trajectory of my life is in um, Cherish This Ecstasy, and it ends really in a Dostoevskian or uh, Isaac of Syria in uh, explosion of joy that is... Uh, I think the most successful uh, counterfeiting of uh, of a true experience, in, you know, just in the form of, you know, language can't touch that stuff, but the way it built, um, I still, you know, it just, it stands up. Uh, I've got <clears throat> about six uh, short bird pieces, and uh, one of the books I want to bring out will be... Uh, it's probably going to be titled, working title is Wandering But Not Really, subtitle Novellas and Birds, and I want to mix fictive novellas with these non-fictive bird experiences, and birds occur in all the novellas. So, And uh, Michael Peach was excited when I told him about that project. And If he stays in the business, I, I would love to work with him again. It's been such a joy to work with that man. Yeah, that... that I mean, it reminds me of uh, River Teeth, in which you're 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 mixing fiction and nonfiction, uh, left and right. That to a young writer, to anyone who's read any type of advice on how to get your book published, don't that, do that. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> don't try to sell your orgasm as <laughs> a mystical experience in a in a work of nonfiction. God damn it. <laughs> So thanks, but no thanks for that advice. <laughs> the Cornell ornithologist, it turned out, never answered my letter. And he was wise, it turned out, not to do so. For into the vacuum created by his lack of answer, wild birds flew and have never stopped answering. Like the 43 Vos Swifts that dropped like dead leaves from an autumn dusk into my cold black chimney, grew still, but then thrummed in their sleep close by the astonished ear I kept putting to the chimney vent as only 86 swift wings can thrum through the night. Or like the small black hole in the ice of a desolate frozen river at which I happened to be gazing, when up popped a lone water oozel who, after a single deep knee bend, burst into desolation-defying song. Or like the still smaller black hole in a leafless, rime-blasted cottonwood against which a heartbroken friend, Max, happened to lean on a Montana winter's walk, out of which burst like bees from a June hive, more than a hundred pygmy nuthatches, bequeathing Max just that fast an acceptance of heartbreak from which grace like honey began to flow. 
or like the 14 Hungarian partridges my rancher friend Tom flushed from buckbrush after a blizzard in 20 below, who half-circled a gulch so frigid Tom feared they'd freeze in midair, only to slam headfirst 30 miles an hour into a fresh snowdrift 100 yards above him, to spend the night tucked in 20 above powder, bequeathing Tom like a love poem the next morning. Fourteen little snow caves, the insides of which shone with the cold's own luminous blue. Or like the lone female loon who mistook a wet, moonlit interstate for water and crash-landed at night on the truck-grooved pavement of the fast lane. Loon to whom I sprinted as a convoy of eighteen-wheelers roared toward us, throwing my coat over her head so she wouldn't stab me, pulling her to my chest as I leapt from the concrete. Loon who, when she felt this blind liftoff, let out a full, far northern tremolo cry <laughs> that pierced without stabbing my coat, ribs, heart, life. All is an ocean, she and Zosima, and the avian choir keep singing as into black holes and trees, chimneys, frozen rivers, frozen hearts, ecstatic birds keep dropping, until, even alone and in darkness, with no special hat, clothes, or wings to help me fly up and feel it, I find myself caught in the endless act of being loved. to David James Duncan for his generosity, for his time, and for being such a champion of our work at Free Flow Institute. If you missed the first part of Rick's interview with David, you can find it at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, subscribe to the show. Thanks, as always, to Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues for our theme music, to the Montana Arts Council, and to the Prop Foundation. To learn more about David, visit his website at davidjamesduncan.com. And for more about the work we do here at Free Flow or the things we talked about on today's show, you can always check out the show notes at freeflowinstitute.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.